Welcome to Is This Scary? This is Phil. This is Zach. This is Shelby. And today we are talking about Misery. And Misery was released in 1990, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan as the two lead characters. And directed by Rob Reiner. Uh, Basic plot for this, James Caan plays Paul Sheldon. He's a famous author, the Misery novels. And he always traditionally finishes his book in, like, I think it's Colorado. Yes, it's in middle of nowhere, Colorado. I was going to say in the book it's Sidewinder. Yeah, yeah. Side, yeah Sidewinder, Colorado. Town in the middle of the mountains in the middle of winter. And as he is leaving with his finished manuscript for his final book, he gets stuck in a blizzard, gets in a car crash, and... Who's there to save the day? Andy Wilkes, his number one fan, played by Kathy Bates. And she nurses him to health. In her most awarded uh, performance of her entire career. Yes. Like, she, I think she took an award at every major show in Yeah, she got the Golden Globe and the Academy Award for Best Actor or Actress for this film. Which, if you haven't seen this, the awards are more than deserved. She... Takes the cake. Not that James Caan is bad at all. He's also fantastic, which is useful. overshadowed. Well, he does, but it's very useful that he's good Mm -hmm. because literally 90% of the movie is James Caan and Kathy Bates. Yeah. Yeah. You had to have a strong actress for the character of Annie Wilkes. And we're going to be gushing about Kathy Bates' performance later, but we just wanted to get the basic synopsis out. And it is literally just a, you just see Paul's just slowly, he's just deteriorating because of his health. He's got two broken legs, a shattered legs more like. He's got a dislocated shoulder and he's just bed bound for a majority of of the story until he gets into the wheelchair and he has a little bit more mobility until later things happen, which we'll go into a little bit detail, but, and she very, very quickly just snaps and goes crazy. This ain't no just innocent citizen that saved my life. No, she's crazy. She's, she is genuinely crazy and obsessed with Paul Sheldon. What are you saying? Are you saying you don't keep a shrine in your living room to every famous writer that you love? No. Is this not normal behavior? No, I might be a oh huge God, fan. I, need to go. I mean, I'm I'm a huge fan of like Batman and stuff like that, but I don't have a shrine to Batman though. <laughs> right. I just have the image of uh, you being Annie Wilkins and Batman's just laying down on on the bed. <laughs> I have broken the Batman. <laughs> off topic, but sorry, off topic. But um, I also find it very interesting where Paul's headspace is. Yes. Because Misery's child is sent to his publisher. Mm-hmm. And the manuscript that he actually has is for his first post-Misery book. Yes. And Annie asks permission to start reading the new book. Mm-hmm. Unaware that it's not a new Misery book. Right. She doesn't appreciate the modern setting because... Misery is Victorian romance. Mm-hmm. She doesn't appreciate the way the street kids talk, blah, blah, blah. Like, she is just completely turned off by the fact that he left Misery behind. 
and she finishes both of the books at about the same time. And these are this one of my favorite scenes because you get this long section where she's just gushing about Misery's Child and how it's the best thing he's ever read. And then the night she finishes it, she storms into the room at some ungodly hour and just, you dirty bird, you killed her. You murdered Misery. It's yeah. just like she just loses it. And mm -hmm. it is a fantastic scene. Yeah. Like he is, and this is like <laughs> one of the times where he is literally genuinely terrified. Like he cannot do anything. He can only take his bummed arm and lift it up to his, and just like hide himself. And there's nothing he can do. No. He can't defend himself. I mean, there's nothing that he can do. And I love that snap. Yeah, like, yeah. those are my favorite parts of the movie. It's just because she's got that dichotomy where she goes from being this, like, sweet country bumpkin. Oh, shucks and darn and cock a -doody. Almost too innocent. Yeah. Right. To, I'll rip your head off. Like, so innocent that she is absolutely offended at the cursing in the book. And... His new book, and it's like, oh, and she, as she's trying to explain how much she doesn't like it, she just refuses to use those words and everything. Mm -hmm. They pull nine yards. She also does the classic thing for people that never grew up in those kind of environments. Well, but nobody actually talks like that. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> she, she is in denial a lot about the world. Denial's not just a river in Egypt. Yeah. Apparently, it's in Colorado, too. <laughs> I mean, if she, if it's literally not about misery, she doesn't care. I mean, she named her own pig misery. Well, that, well that's the best thing uh, about the credits is the fact that the pig is in the credits as misery, the pig herself. As herself. I wonder if well, Kathy Bates kept the pig. <laughs> Did know. she keep the pig? I need to know. Well, but what I find interesting is she says, okay, well, I was able to overlook the language is, I mean, it's still your writing, it's still a good book, but in her rage over the death of misery, she literally makes him burn the new manuscript mm -hmm. that he didn't even have a title for yet. Yeah. This is literally just untitled book by Paul Sheldon is yep. what's on the title page. And she, I mean, she calls it literal filth. She's like, no, you have to get rid of this filth. And he, or she makes him do it. Like, he tries to play it off like, Oh, well, they've already got a copy, so there's no reason to burn this copy. It's already... Then she's like, okay. She calls immediately calls him on his bluff. Okay, well, if they already have it, then there's no reason why you can't burn this copy. And he's just like... Ugh. And it's literally just the, the mannerisms. And he does such a good job with the acting because he just flicks the match at it. And he's just like, all that work. For nothing. Well, I'm pretty sure in the book, it took him two years to write that. And in both the book and the movie, it's very clear that Paul Sheldon did not want to be an award-winning romance novelist. Mm -hmm. The idea for the first Misery book just came to him when he was down on his luck. It was something he thought might sell. And from what I remember in the background of the book, like the first one was a moderate success, but it was enough for a sequel. And then like two or three books in it took off mm -hmm. and then sales on the back catalog went through the roof and they were just, well, you have to keep going to the point that Misery's Child is what, like 
books. 10, 12. Books. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's a like lot 12. Books. At least it's, 10 books. Yeah. And so he was done. Yeah. Misery's child was done. She dies in childbirth because that's a very believable way for a Victorian yeah. character to die. Yeah. But by this time, he's just so done with it. I mean, anytime he hears the name, he's like, misery. He's like, it's literally just about misery, misery, misery. And I like what they do with that is because it's like, that's all he's hearing when he's at the Wilkes house. That's all he's hearing is misery, misery. It's everywhere to the point where it's just like, he would just go insane by just listening to the name. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and think about it. It's He's at the point where he's basically stuck in a dead-end job. Mm-hmm. because he's been writing misery novels it's got to be at least 15 years if you've written 10 at least 10 novels that takes a long time to write mm-hmm. so like we're saying it's a decade and a half mm-hmm. we're not exactly sure when he fell out of love with with his world really yeah but he did yeah and it's like so how many years did he just toil through because it put his kids through private school. Bought him a penthouse in New York. It bought him fancy cars and nice clothes and everything else. It's mm-hmm. like, well, I kind of have to do this because this pays for my lifestyle. Right. But he had finally talked his agent and the publisher and everything. It's like, look, can I kill misery? I have other ideas. We can put this series to bed and we can keep making money together. I mean, to be fair, we don't know if he was ever in love with that world or anything or if it was just a money maker so it could have just been that drag on his life his whole life I, yeah it i think could it have could have been that he was he was done being a writer and he wanted to do something else i mean it would be hard being as he's a middle-aged man when it's at 40s 30s and he's he's in his 40s yeah, yeah. like 40s and probably i th- wouldn't be surprised he's not married anymore I know he has a daughter, which he which he cares about, but not sure exactly what his relationship with her is. But what is he? What else is he going to do? So it is like he is stuck within a rock and a hard place with what he well, wants. But he want he's done with the story. He's done with the character. Well, but yeah, because I don't know that he was done being a writer. Because to me, his motivations were pretty clear that he wanted to keep having his creative outlet. He just didn't want it to be misery anymore. Mm-hmm. He's hating his own creation. I love the cinematography in this film. It's great. It's a lot of close-ups, especially on eyes. I love seeing dynamic of how quick Kathy Bates can switch on a dime. And then also going to James Caan's eyes as well and seeing just he will also notice things as well. He's just like... Oh, crap. Like, his eyes will get very wide, or he'll... I love it when he, like, flips her off. Like, he's just very... A lot of times, he's just very dead in the face because he's just over it. But he has no energy to say anything back because he can't. If he says something bad back, he's probably going to get punished in some way, Um, which is just a form of torture because he is being tortured right now. Well, he's a prisoner. Yeah. She... Has put him under literal house arrest. Yeah. I mean, he has to be very careful what he says and what he does because she can twist on a dime. It's almost like she has, like, a multiple multiple personality at times. Um, and there's also a moment where one of her hairpins falls out and he notices it on the floor. I love what they do because it's, like, at a 
kind of like a side wide angle, but it's also illuminated because of the windows. So the, the sunshine's coming through the windows and it's got like a rectangle around. It's like, oh, it's like there, there's your key to get out of the house. I love what they do with that, but cool. close-ups are great. And that's how we get the jump scare was with a close-up. Well, I mean, and most of what you're talking about boils down to the fact that Rob Reiner is a fantastic director. Yeah. Whenever he's in control of the camera, you can tell because he just really does make it his point of view and he knows exactly mm -hmm. what he wants to portray to the audience. This isn't one of those movies where there's like a lot of wasted film or anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very punctuated. It's very intentional. Yeah. So my favorite aspect of this movie that I, I that jumped in my head would be the setting in a manner of it's just levels on levels of isolation. Yes. Um. Yeah, he's stuck in that room. When Annie Wilkes leaves periodically. He then had that expands to the house, but you have this view through the window the whole time of the, the surrounding area, and it's just isolated in the snow and everything. He can't traverse it. He yeah. can't. No. So even at the bet, his best situation, he's stuck. Yeah. Right. And it's it's a really good builder of like tension mm -hmm. and. Maybe not necessarily fear, but tension. Well, because that's a good point, because I didn't even realize that, but not thinking about it, like you were saying, layers of isolation, I think that's very accurate, because mm -hmm. originally, he's in the little cabin resort. Yeah. With all the freedom in the world. Right. And then he leaves, mm -hmm. snow starts coming down, and he crashes. And what we eventually find out is Annie Wilkes lives on her little farm decent way outside of a tiny town so like the isolation is just that's another layer because it's there's not even a real metropolitan area for yeah. him to escape to yeah and there is the greatest sheriff in horror this, history yes. oh, the best story. small town sheriff ever his name is buster he's great fantastic and, and Relationship goals. Yes. Buster and his wife are amazing to each other. Virginia, you're my deputy, not my wife. We on duty. <laughs> There's what, that sass again. <laughs> There's that spice again. Oh, so it keeps oh. us together. Yeah. He is great. He does. Oh, he's man. he's doing his job as a as a sheriff, but at the same time not doing his job. Because you got to remember, they're in the middle of nowhere. No crimes are do? being committed. Well, but if you also remember, whenever the agent calls from New York, you're like, well, I'd like to talk to the sheriff or the chief of police. And you're like, well, depends on which one you'd like to talk to at the moment. It's like, well, I'd like to talk to whichever one's not busy. Well, neither of them are busy, given I'm both. <laughs> and the uh, head of the policeman's auxiliary and every other law enforcement, anything you can think of that goes on in that town. He is the head or the chair of it. Yeah. I love the fact He's that he puts... Talker. I love the fact that he puts uh, the name on the... Uh, sticky note, turns, and just sticks it on the board behind him. That's his organization system. Yep. Yeah, so good. Don't mess with my pile of papers. I know exactly where everything is on my desk. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, he... I mean, he does, like, his duty. Like, he... he goes he he looks at um the road to see if he can find maybe a car or something like that but again the weather is a big thing 
So with that first scene when he goes and looks and he finds the broken tree on the side mm-hmm. of the road, like I could see the audience wanting to go, well, he didn't look hard enough. All right, time out. This is an elderly man who is now hip deep in the snow. Yeah. He's going to stop and turn around because he doesn't want to fall down that hill. Right. Also, yeah. his his wife's there. He doesn't want to embarrass himself because she knows she's going to just be a, a smart aleck the whole time and make fun of him. And what she does. So it's like, okay, get me out of the hole. We're going home. <laughs> but you can also tell that while he wants Paul to be okay, he is super excited to have something to do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He goes... He goes everywhere to figure out everything he can. Yeah. To the point where he reads all of the misery books. Yeah. To understand Paul Sheldon, yes. And that helps him to make the connection later on in the story. Um, yeah, he does he does a great job. His his sass and his one liners with his wife are just hilarious. And just how the agent I feel like the agent could have pushed a little bit more. She was that type of character where she's like as a as an agent, you that that's your livelihood. You're whoever you're you're working with, Paul and her are like this is my child. I got to make sure she's okay because they get me money, but I also help them. I promote them, so I got to make sure they're okay. She would have sent people. I feel like eventually. I agree with you. I mean, it works better for narratively for the story right. for her to not be as invested, but. The story, the backstory we get on them is she's been with Paul from the first Misery book. Right. Meaning that this man in that, in the film's world, is the premier romance novelist. Mm-hmm. The Misery books are the best-selling romance series of all time. No, you're absolutely right. She yeah. is sending her own search party to Colorado. Yeah. yeah. Because this is a multi-million dollar writer that has just gone missing. Right. And I guess depending on the way that you're looking at that, because of this situation, it also makes it confusing for us on how much time has passed. And that's the same thing for Paul, too, because he has no idea. In the novels, he has no idea what time has passed. He is like a calendar on his wall, but he knows for a fact that the calendar hasn't been switched in a while. So he has no idea. And also the rain and the snow keeps on coming back doesn't snow and then all of a sudden it snows again so it's like oh my gosh how much time has gone by because you would think okay as the snow starts melting her time is running out because the car gets found but then it snows again so it's like okay i guess her time's not running out i now so it's it re- it messes with you because it's like oh the snow is melting Shh, the car is going to be it, found it messed with me hard because i was sitting there I was in there trying to figure out like how long actually it's been going on, and I remember asking you all during it because I didn't pay that much attention to the time passage mm-hmm. the first time I watched the movie years ago. Yeah. But uh, this time I was around, it's like, what? It's been a year now. Like it, it sh- snowed, long? it rained, it snowed again. Yeah. How long does it take for shattered legs to heal? Right. Well, oh, forever. Exactly. Yeah. Takes a long time. One of the narrative tools that Stephen King uses in the novel especially is that uncertain passage of time. The just the unknown time gap is almost a character in the book. Yeah. Because Paul thinks about it 
constantly yeah. because why wouldn't you? It's I've been in this room for so long. I have bed sores. My legs have healed. What's what's going on in the outside world? Why is nobody coming for me? Right. I mean, the only <laughs> way that for a short period of time he is able to calculate how much time is passed is when Annie goes on a rant and she knocks over a table and a pen. This is in the book. This is not in the movie. She's um, she not she knocks over a table and a pen comes out and while she leaves for like three days, he's able to calculate the passage by doing tally marks on his arm. And I mean, during that time, so I mean, she's gone. So no pen pain medication for him. No water. No food. I mean, he's drinking his own urine at this point. I mean... <clears throat> that is one thing I would like to bring up real quick is the pain medication. Mm -hmm. because it's So it's Novril, which is something that Stephen King made up. But in the book, he quickly becomes addicted to it. His legs aren't set right. Those bones are just mending on rudimentary wraps. His shoulder's real jacked up. So, yeah, he's taking the pain pills. That was the one thing that I didn't appreciate the change to in the movie because, like, the pain pills are there. Mm -hmm. But they don't seem to be all that important. No. Because they completely fall out of the story about halfway through the movie. Yeah. Once he realizes that he can't use them to drug her, because that's what he tries <laughs> to do. Yeah. Um, we'll let you watch the movie. Yeah. He's like, oh, well, I'm not going to take these anymore. So, again, we we don't really know how much time has passed because by the time he's stopped taking pills, he's not obviously not in pain anymore to the point where... He can pretty much use his bum arm. Yeah. I mean, he's cheating with his arm a lot because he's hiding it a lot because eventually she gives him a typewriter and he's using that as exercise because it's heavy. Well, that's because he has to write Misery's Return Ugh, after gross. writing Misery's Child. Exactly. What was your favorite part? Or your you mentioned your favorite part, Phil. The isolation. Yes. Which I do want to point out because it jumped in my head. Uh, with the use of the drugs in the book being more prevalent, uh, and the fact that this whole movie and story is an allegory to drug use, that doubles down on the iso isolation and even the concept of the big wind the bay window in his uh in the room mm -hmm. is that you can see the outside, you can see what could be but you're stuck in this root this routine of uh self-destruction yeah right and the self-destruction for him is writing is resurrecting the character that he killed to set him free because it'd be like well great now i'm back in my same creative rut. right what a, i might as well just kill myself mm -hmm. and she is literally dictating every single chapter every single page she she takes each chapter and red pins the heck out of it and brings it back to him. Mm -hmm. If it's not right, you got to start over. And he's just like, oh, <laughs> I like the little jab he puts in there. He, She's like, I do appreciate that you named the grave. Uh, what was it? The grave digger after me. That's that's fine. And I was like, that's funny. <laughs> I don't think she gets it. <laughs> it's like, that's a stab. That's a jab at you, Annie. Yes. But Well, and I mean has to be there for a really long time because he gets through what like 30 something chapters or whatever it's like oh, that's yeah. a long book mm -hmm. <laughs> it's thick 
It's about half of a Stephen King's book. Yep. It's like half of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is. When we're getting close to the climax of the film, I mean, it gets to the point where the book is almost finished. He realized that he can't just drug her. So he's got to... He's got to be a little tricky on it. He's using her wit. Because she's smart. Yes. He's, Annie Wilkes is a very smart character. And it's like, okay, I got to stab her. <laughs> so using the hairpin, he's able to get out of the room a couple times. Go ahead. <laughs> I hate that scene. Because he's a guy who's obviously never, ever picked a lock. And he messes with the lock for about seven whole seconds and manages to open the door. Yeah. I understand that from the point of the cinematography and the story pacing and everything, mm-hmm. he needs to figure this out quickly. I just found that very unrealistic. Yeah. See, my issue with that scene, and there's a few. Well, one is very, I, I don't think I've ever seen a lock on the inside of a door like that. Usually it's only on one side. Usually. And I give you, she may have set it up that way. I don't know. Well, I mean, old school, usually the keyhole would have only been on the inside of the door, so you can lock yourself Mm -hmm. into the room for privacy. Yeah. Yeah. But the other factor is, is I've also, I've seen people pick locks before. I've seen people pick locks in movies. I've never seen someone lock a lock with a bobby pin. I don't think you can yeah. Definitely not like that. Because he definitely doesn't. Right. I know. <laughs> but he's able to get out of the room. He's done in exploring. He finds her shrine and he also finds her memoirs, her memory lane. Oh, yeah. Her and, scrapbook. Yeah. Of all the people that she has killed. I mean, she has killed several babies, adults. Oh, no. No, no. Two or three adults, a whole lot of babies. Yes. I mean, to the point that the... Uh, that she gets a, a newspaper nickname. She's the Dragon Lady. Yeah. Yeah, she... Probably because when they got her in court, mm-hmm. I'm sure her temper came out. Oh, yeah. Because they tried to, I guess, almost like treat her like she was stupid. That she was just like some country bumpkin and stuff like that. And she's like, no, I'm a nurse. But that's what I don't get. Because then that means the lawyers that run her case didn't do their jobs very well. Because even some of the scraps that she had... Or something like mm-hmm. she got high level nursing jobs. Those are always competitive positions, meaning she's a really good nurse. She has to be. The other thing about it is they have to be good enough because she got off. Yeah. She did. Right. They couldn't pin anything on her, except that every time she took something over, infant deaths went through the roof. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which also shows her treatment of Paul because she treats him a lot like a child sometimes, especially a lot in more in the book. She's like, oh, don't be just a kidder and stop. You're whining. I just hear a lot of crying because, I mean, Paul does. Like, he gets upset in more in the book. Like, he's crying. He's, like, begging for his pills and stuff like that. We don't really get that much in the movie. He's kind of very subdued. But that's, which is fine. Um, still, he does a great job in that. But it shows that 
she can't stand it. It's almost very annoying. And it's like, okay, she's the dragon lady because the, all these babies would cry. And, of course, she didn't really know what to do with them except for, okay, I'm just going to overdose them until they died. But he finds her memoirs. He's like, yep, she she's still crazy. And is able to get a knife from the kitchen. Hides it in a sling. Hides it in a sling. And his plan is, okay, when she comes back... From her depression moment, because she—that's when she leaves with oh, the yeah. gun. Because it gets rainy. Yeah, it gets so rainy, so she gets the blues, and she's like super suicidal, and decides I'm gonna leave in my bathrobe with a gun. And he's like, "Okay, this is my moment. When she comes back, I'm gonna stab her." Yeah, when she comes back, she finds everything. <laughs> well, and that's if you big... remember right when she comes back. He's just got a syringe full of sedative and just stabs yeah. him in the arm yeah. immediately. Yeah. She's, a, she's able to find his hidey spot and is, I love that shot because it's, it's a, it's a low angle shot from his point of view. And it's just her looking down at him, flashy the knife, looking for this. She didn't even say anything. Lightning, very dramatic. And then, okay, syringe, you're doped up. I'll see you in the morning. Which we get the most graphic scene. Quick question. Yes. Should we just leave that scene? We could. Let let the weight of that scene stay in the uh, movie itself? We can. So there is... You probably know what we're talking about. Yes. But we'll not go into specifics, but it is one of the most famous scenes out of this movie. Yes. And as you mentioned earlier, because I have not gotten that far into the book, but you have finished it. It's different and worse. I, I get, it's worse yeah, in the book. Yeah, it is worse in the book. And it's like, okay, you really could, depending on what your poison is, it could be worse in the movie. But at the same time, it's still bad. Um, but yeah, we won't go into too much detail about that. Um, Just so we can leave leave it for you all to experience yeah. If you haven't already. Yeah. Okay, so after that point, he goes through his second round of healing, mm-hmm. which is when we get closer to finishing the book, and the sheriff starts putting the, actually putting the case all the way together. Yeah. yeah. He makes the connection that she is very obsessed about this person. Well, and the time that she was quoted in court, she used a line out of, one of his books. Yes. So she's able to find out that he, one, she's a criminal. She's got a record. Mm-hmm. Also, she's, he knows for a fact that her farm is in the middle of nowhere. That she's, he can't prove anything, but she's potentially killed people as far as his viewpoint goes. Right. But then also knows that she's been ordering writing stuff from the local store. Typewriter, typing paper, so the it's like, correct paper. Exactly. The correct paper. This paper is too glossy. It will smudge. It's the most expensive, Paul. But my paper's the best. It costs the most. It's not how that works. It's not the right pa- paper. It's not the Amy. right paper. <laughs> I love her. They're, they're, they go back and forth. But I love it. Um, but yes, the sheriff is like, okay, I'm just going to do what a sheriff does in a little town. I'm just going to go check on them. And I'm going to go give 
I'm going to go visit Annie. Yep. Let's go. And she, I mean, she does not hide it that she, like, she immediately starts spouting off, like, facts about Paul. Like, oh, he was born during this time. Uh, blah, 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 blah. He went to this school. Blah, blah. And it's like, the sheriff is just, uh-huh, uh-huh. Let me walk into your house and start looking in your house. <laughs> well, now, right before, because this is important, right mm-hmm. before the sheriff enters the house, she opens her secret door door down into the cellar mm-hmm. and literally kicks Paul down the stairs and shuts the door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love your work. You're my favorite author. This is Sparta. Exactly. Because <laughs> like, go down there and shut up. I, I like the whole dynamic because they're both suspicious of each other. Absolutely. Because one of the things, what? no, not at all. Mm-hmm. With how that ends. No, no, it's suspicious. <laughs> Well, because one of the major things that Annie has made clear, she doesn't get visitors. Not People don't visit often. Annie is a pariah in town. The town's people don't really like her. She's mm-hmm. the weird lady that lives in the farm. And she doesn't like them either. Right. Because she, she has a lot. Because, I mean, she's got she, road rage. Yeah, she's got road rage, but she's also, there's if she's got a certain feeling about a certain person, she's not going to like you. Because I think it even goes into more depth in the book because obviously you learn more about Annie in the book. Is there certain people she's like, no, that person's a divorcee. I don't like her. Mm -mm." Super Christian. Yes. She's a dirty bird. I don't like her. Right. So like super evangelical. Yeah. Kind of mindset to that. Yeah. So the sheriff searches every room in the house. Um, One of the scenes I forgot towards the end I thought she was going to take him out earlier than she did. Yeah. Because she found him in her bedroom. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, oh. Here's your hot chocolate. Like, she didn't react to that. I, mm-hmm. I won't lie. I assume the hot chocolate's poisoned. Probably. We never know. But, so he denies the hot chocolate. And after he's gone through literally every room in the house, he leaves. And as he's on the front porch about to go off the last step, he just... Faintly, here's just, just like scratches and bangs. Mm-hmm. And goes back in. Thinking that she hurt herself. Like, Mrs. Wilkes, are you okay? And Have, then hears a man yell. I'm down here. I'm down here. And then finds the basement. Mr. Sheldon. Boom. And his chest literally just disappears. Yes. It's, a, mag- it's a magic trick. And it's gone. Rip. Well, yeah. I mean, of course this chest just completely disappears. When you shove a double-barreled shotgun right up against somebody's spine and pull the trigger, that's usually what happens. At this point, Annie's like, okay, they've come for us. Now it's time, so she's going to do a murder-suicide. The book's not even going to be finished, and he plays with her because he's No, the book's done. He's got like a couple pages. He's got a couple pages pages, left. And And he goes... I love you too. Okay, you we have gotta to, finish the book. Yeah, you have to let me finish the book. And then it show, and she says something about like he's only got a couple of days. Well, but it's I had to kill the sheriff. They're gonna notice he's gone. People are gonna start looking for him. So there, we have two, three days max. You have to write very quickly. And he's like, okay, that's not a problem. So he finishes the book, and then takes the last two pages, where he wraps up. Every 
plot hole that he ever left hanging in the entire series. Mm-hmm. And stares at her. When she comes in, he goes, it's done, but everything's right here. And he starts crumpling it up. And she freaks out. Yep. And he lights it on fire in front of her. Burn, burn, burn. Yep. And that's this moment. He's like, okay, I'm going to take this typewriter and throw which, it on your head. <laughs> which, by the way. Here, catch. An important plot point is the typewriter that she bought. Because being a head nurse at multiple places, she's got some money put away, but she's not wealthy. So she bought a very old, like, steel or iron secondhand typewriter that weighs a ton. Mm -hmm. But it's missing an end. It is missing the end. Which is why she got such a good deal on it. Exactly. And he introduces that typewriter to her skull multiple times. Yes. This part of the (laughs) film is probably like my only bummer, though, is because after all the stuff that he has gone through, especially more worse in the book, Mm -hmm. which I haven't got that far into the book again. I don't know how it ends. In the film, if I was him, I would have just gone at her. Like, bash her skull in. And it's just, it kind of, it just ends quickly. It does end quickly. Sorry, real quick. um, With the typewriter... Uh, the lowest weight for older typewriters is 40 pounds. Yeah. It could be more. Mm-hmm. So yep. at that point, it's just, hey, catch this 40-pound weight. Exactly. But uh, on that note of what you were saying, because mm-hmm. we were talking about it beforehand, how I I feel like they didn't want to go that route mm-hmm. because that would have shown him snapping Yeah. and, and taking he's... him into a whole different direction than they probably wanted yeah. to. And he and that would just make him like her that yeah, she that exactly. she, that she snapped and he has snapped as well. But and the final like scene conclusion is he's with his agent and they're just at a restaurant and he's talking about her and he's like openly it's not triggering for him to talk about her, but he sees her everywhere. Yep. Like he sees her as a dessert waitress comes through and as she comes up. Oh, are you Paul Sheldon? I'm your b- number one fan. And he's like, thanks. Thanks a lot. By the way, this this whole conversation is happening after he has written and released a book about that whole situation. Because that's what she, that's what they said. Was she that, said, uh, his publicist mm-hmm. said something about doing, writing. Oh, no. no, he rewrote he rewrote the novel that she okay. destroyed. Yeah. Okay. Well, either way, what he rewrote a uh, he rewrote it or wrote mm-hmm. another book. It's still a large chunk of time. Yeah. It's yes, it's a good rewrite. it's a good ways afterwards, but he's released another bestseller. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at. And that's misery. And that's misery. Yep. That's a really really good movie. Yep. I recommend it. Yep. Uh, I it's agree. like. Four and a half out of five stars. It's almost yeah. perfect. I, I'm i not sure exactly what Stephen King's... Because you know, Stephen King's film um, novels have been done and done and done. I'd be very curious to see what his opinion of this one... Because we all know what his opinion was about The Shining. But I'm not sure exactly what his opinion about this was. And I wouldn't be surprised it was probably positive. Yeah, you're not going to be able to film 
half the stuff that Stephen King puts in his books. Right. You can't. There's no way. You can't make it because of the child orgy that happens. You can't do that. Mm. You can't do that on screen. But I think he would... I think he would have. I would be curious to see what his reaction about this this movie. This would one, be. I, I agree. I don't see why he wouldn't like it because mm-hmm. it it has the differences that have to happen between adaptations to a different medium. Mm-hmm. But it's you can tell that Rob Reiner and the script writers had respect for the original book. Yeah. And now for horror news. Uh, a lot of Stephen King news. There's going to be a lot of uh, reboots of Stephen King works coming out. Uh, as an example, Salem's Lot, which is going to be directed by um, James Wan. And then also they're doing a Firestarter, I think, TV show as well. Um, so those two, those are in the works. And then... On that note, mm-hmm. on Stephen King's, mm-hmm. uh, his book... Billy Summers is a. Uh, it's going to be made into a uh, limited series. Okay. Here's one that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So for you uh, true crime fans that are hanging out with our podcast, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is set to play cult leader Jim Jones in White Knight. So they're going to go through the Jonestown's massacre, and it's going to get the it's. With a horror spin to it. Yeah. So that should be pretty good. Yeah. be nice to actually see that. I mean, that's a common thing with serial killers or cultists. They do either documentaries and then it's like, okay, we're going to actually do a, like a full lake feature. So I, I'd be down for that. Well, I mean, it's about time. That happened in 78. Mm. What? Nah, that, this is a short jump. Oh, and then just... An interesting thing. Phil and I were actually talking about this earlier this week. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller, of all people, has expressed interest in being in Halloween Ends. This is a fun time to introduce a brand new super famous person into your your film series. All right. So we're, what, over a dozen movies into Halloween at this point? Let's introduce one of the most famous Buffy mainstream horror actresses. Why? Why? It's <laughs> going off of Halloween ends. They have already people's opinions about Halloween ends is fans are going to be very confused. Is what people is what test some, audiences? Not test audiences, but actually people who have worked on the film that they're like uh, fans might be a little upset. And I'm like, that could be literally anything. Well, I mean, mean, here's my thing. That could be the smallest of things. They could literally. Don't say that. Yeah. Just don't trash your movie that's going to make money. Mm -hmm. Just let that come out. Yeah. I agree. (laughs) At some point, I need to get around to watching Scream 5. I still haven't done that. Yeah. Did you? Have you? I've not seen it. I'm the only one. Okay. I think that's it. Yeah, I guess our plans, um, now that we did Misery, our first snow-themed. Snow-themed? And we I mean, will so snow's, we're snow's horror, there. horror films set in snowy areas. So if we're going to do that, then we're probably going to have to watch some Norwegians crash a helicopter very soon. Yeah. 
And if you don't know what that means, you'll be surprised with the next episode. You're not a horror fan if you don't know what that means. It's the thing. <laughs> John Carpenter's the thing. And let us know if you yeah. if there is any suggestions that you have for anything horror, games, comics, books, movies, TV. Let us know what your suggestions are. Because hopefully y'all will have, by, by now, y'all will have listened to and appreciated our Lock and Key episode. Because that's us branching out of just talking about movies. Mm-hmm. Hit us up on Instagram. Hit us up on Twitter. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on anything that you can possibly find us on. Hey. If you can find us on MySpace, we're not there, but if you can, hit us up. <laughs> and if you hit us up on Facebook, thanks to one of the three people that actively look at our Facebook page. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, this is Phil. This is Shelby. This is Zach. Stay spooky. <laughs>